talk about our great missionary task. And um, that's really evangelism. It's, uh, it involves two simple things. And if there are any missiologists in the room, I'll probably make you mad because I'm oversimplifying. But our missionary task really involves sending and going. And you guys are all involved in some part of that in this room. Most of you are senders, and I thank God for senders because I couldn't be here standing today speaking to you without a team of people that support and invest in our ministry. One of the most famous things we know about William Carey, that missionary, really giant in, in missionary stature, who with no formal education, translated the scriptures into some 40 different languages and dialects on the Indian subcontinent. This is a guy that wrote the first Bengali dictionary, English Bengali dictionary, who founded the Indian Agricultural Society, to name a few of his accomplishments. This is a guy with a sick wife who couldn't get his support together, who went to the field late. He said to his supporters, if you'll hold a rope, I'll go down to the pit. And those of you who are supporting missionaries are holding the rope, and I thank God for people like you. But it's important to remember that in this great task of sending and going, uh, these, these responsibilities overlap. And those of us who go must be involved in sending, and those of you who send must also be involved in going to proclaim the gospel beginning with your sphere of influence, whatever that might be. And we're approaching a passage of scripture, John chapter 4, if you want to turn there, that perhaps as well as any other in scripture equips us for this great end of going and telling. And it's a passage that is universally known as the story of the woman at the well, right? You've heard of that? I think that's a bit of a misnomer. I think we should rather think of this passage as the story of the man at the well. Because the woman that went to that place, that well, on that day, behaved in an absolutely predictable way. Everything she did was predictable, but the man that she met there, everything he did was utterly astonishing, given his personal and the historical context that he found himself in, in this passage. And it's a huge passage, verses 1 through 42. It's such a huge passage, I'm going to let you read that on your own. But we're going to look at two things, what she did and what he did. We're going to keep things simple. And we're going to kind of, kind of gloss over what she did and focus in especially what the Lord Jesus did. Because like I said, what he did was monumental. And before we get going, let's, let's briefly pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we need to hear from you as Eric so often says when we come here. And we trust that you will, will speak to us, Lord, and that you'll glorify through your Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all men will be drawn to him, both believing and unbelieving. Lord, we love you, and thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us to grope about in the dark uh, in this world, but you have given us your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Lord. We love you and trust you for the outcome, in Jesus' name. There are lots of ways to divide up the Gospels. And one of the ways to divide up the Gospels is according to the people that Jesus met with, because Jesus met with representative people. I don't mean to say by that that they were not real. They were real. They were historical. But he met with representative people. For example, 
In John chapter 3, the Lord meets with a representative person, someone who is up and in. His name is, anybody remember? Nicodemus. Right? He, he has every advantage and privilege of education and birth. He is the cream of the crop of his culture. He is rich. He is a Pharisee. He is a scholar. He is a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling party of Israel. He, by Jesus' own definition, was the teacher of Israel. Definite article. The teacher of Israel. Amazing man. And yet with all these advantages of education and birth, what Jesus says to him is the last thing he expected to hear. He said, Nicodemus, you need another birth. You need to be born again. It kind of challenged his status. In Luke 19, on his way to the cross, the Lord stopped to meet with another representative person, someone who was quite literally up and out. His name was Zacchaeus. And he was up in a tree. And he was rich. And he was powerful. But he was despised by his people, unlike Nicodemus. And today in this passage, Jesus meets with another representative person. Someone who is quite literally down and out. A Samaritan. And not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. And not just any Samaritan woman, but a very immoral Samaritan woman. And she went out and met Jesus on a day when it was hot and dry and dusty. And that well was a long way off. And quite frankly, I think I identify more with her than with the other two who were rich and famous. Or rich and powerful. Now what did she do? Five things. We're just pretty much going to gloss over them, but some, some explanation. The first thing that she did when she came to Jesus was that she immediately sank into stereotypes. Look at verses 5 through 8, especially, and in 5 through 9, actually. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, <clears throat> excuse me, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, that's high noon, Jewish time. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for the disciples have gone away into the city to buy food. Now the Samaritan woman here in verse 9 falls into stereotypes. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, Ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman. For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Do you see all the stereotypes there? There's a racial stereotype. There's a religious stereotype. There's a sexual stereotype. In other words, you're a Jewish man, she says. And I'm expecting you to treat me in a certain way. And if you don't, I think I know what you want. You see, this woman was no rookie with men. And she had an idea that if some man, some Jewish man, was addressing her alone, that there was a good reason for it because she thought she knew the reason and she had him pegged. And at no other time in the history of the church, especially over the last 30 years, has the world stereotyped us as concretely as they stereotype us today. We're the religious right or the alt-right or were those people who bombed, you know, abortion clinics, or were, the, oh, you're with one of those preachers who fell. People concretely stereotype us. That's just the way it is. That's how she started her conversation with Jesus. The second thing that she did was that she wanted to know how he could meet her needs. Verse 11, let me paraphrase it. 
sir, this is a deep well and you got short arms. You're going to give me water? How are you going to give me this water? And I think that's primarily the question that the world is asking. They want to know how the gospel is going to meet their needs. I don't mean to say by that that I believe that that's the first question we should address. But that's often the first question that is asked, right? And I think we as Christians sometimes have a hard time moving on from this. We want to live the Christian life with Jesus as a Pez dispenser. We want him to meet our needs. You know, I've been, uh, my book, which is uh, Discipleship, God's Plan for Parenting, we want to send it to 1,500 pastors free of charge. We're raising money for that. And uh, so that they can be impacted by the book and pass on the principles to their, to their people. But I've been looking, we want to send the book to pastors who are like-minded, right? Because we don't want them to receive the book, which is an investment by our ministry and by you, and then have them throw it away. We want to send it to like-minded pastors. And I've read hundreds of, of web pages so far, church web pages, hundreds and hundreds, perhaps even into the thousands now, uh, doctrinal statements. And I've been amazed at how we approach giving the gospel and how we approach Christian life by selling people the idea that Jesus will make their lives happier. I think that happens in the long run. But we should rather be asking the question and encouraging people as to how can you live your life in such a way that you will give God the most glory. I don't know if you've read the book. I'm, I'm sure some of you have that great book, the classic book by J.I. Packer, uh, Knowing God. Great book. I highly recommend it. But there's that beautiful introduction where Packer says, as a clown has often wanted to play Hamlet, so I have often wanted to write a treatise on God. Very humble, very sweet. But then he says, there came a day in my Bible study when there was a Copernican revolution. Remember Copernicus? He was the great Polish genius who redrew the ancient model of geocentric solar system. He said, that's all wrong. It's heliocentric, the sun is in the middle. And listen, that changed everything. That changed the way we looked at everything. I think two plus two was three before that. <laughs> it literally did. And he says, there came a time when there was a Copernican revolution in my Bible study because I used to approach the Bible and I would ask the question first, what does this say about me? And then he said, I began to ask the question first, what does this say about God? He said, he made all the difference in the world. And I think each one of us needs to go there, needs to have that kind of revolution and move beyond this first step of how Jesus can meet our needs and ask the question, how can I live my life so as to glorify God? Verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where will you get this living water? She wanted to know how he was going to meet her needs. C.S. Lewis, by the way, wanted to know if it was true but not everybody's as noble as C.S. Lewis. The third thing she did, she wanted to talk about controversial questions. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now let me give you a little bit of historical context because that'll help us all understand even what Jesus did here. In 722 B.C., 
the Assyrians came in and hauled off the ten northern tribes of the nation of Israel. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, dragged the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, off to captivity. And in that time of dispersion, the Jews who remained in the land in that middle place called Samaria intermarried to a very great degree. They really compromised their spiritual lineage and married into the pagans of the land. And therefore, when the Jews resettled the land, they rejected those in Samaria as being half-breeds, those who had defiled themselves by blood and therefore couldn't be part of the commonwealth of Israel because of those historical circumstances. And because of those circumstances, and in isolation there in Samaria, another alternate religion began to develop. And the Samaritans began to notice, just as you know, when the Jews built, they had their temple in, in Judah, right, in Jerusalem, they began to notice that Jerusalem was never mentioned in the Torah in terms of Jerusalem being the place where men ought to worship. It's indicated in Deuteronomy that the temple could only be built in one place. But after all, Abraham in Genesis 12, 7, this was the first place where Jesus was talking to this woman, where he sacrificed, and they argued that they could build their temple there. And in 400 B.C., it kind of culminated with them building their own rival temple there on Mount Gerizim. Again, close to where Jesus was talking to this lady. And the Jews, in 108 B.C., invaded Samaria, destroyed that temple, and quashed their renegade religion. So you can imagine how they must have hated each other for that. And the antipathy that the Samaritans felt to the Jews, not only for rejecting them spiritually, but for destroying their attempt at an alternate form of worship. And this woman carries all this historical baggage of prejudice with her. And even though this man is different, he is, after all, a Jew. And she really wants to talk about these controversies. And that's often where the world goes when we begin to lead them to the gospel. They want to know why Christians are killing Muslims. Or why Catholics are killing Protestants in Belfast. Or why all these wars that have been conducted through out Western history have been religious wars. And the reason for that is, is that the church and the state have been one in states wage war. And guess what happens? Then the church is by proxy in the war itself. Tip of the hat to our founding fathers, right? But she wanted to get bogged down with controversial questions. And listen, the whole point of sharing the gospel is to lead them to whom? to Jesus Christ. And even though people want to pull us this way and that, listen, we have to point them to the person of Jesus Christ because he is the answer, right? And right about verse 25, this lady begins to get on the right track. She begins to understand that this man is different and she begins to want to know who he is. And that's the all-important thing. We can use a variety of methods to share our faith. You can borrow from one. You can reject one particular method. You can include your own evangelistic strategy in there. You can use the Romans Road. You can use the Four Laws. You can use Evangelism Explosion. There's many, many ways to share 
your faith. But among the non-negotiables, the things that we have to include, the things that we have to tell them is who he is. Because no matter what else an unbeliever is interested in, whether it's fellowship or whether it's, it's overcoming loneliness or whatever, they cannot, they cannot receive life until they become interested in who Jesus Christ is and what he did. And when this woman got to that point along verse 25, she became, as it were, harvestable. Verse 25, look at that. It says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And she begins to suspect here that he is that Messiah, that anointed one. And so the fifth thing that she did was that she received him. She received him. Say, how do you know that? Because it's not in the passage. I know that from verse 28. She left her water pot. She came to that place in the heat of the day to gather life-sustaining water, and she forgot her water pot. You know how you can tell if someone becomes a Christian? They get a whole new set of priorities. They become obsessed with the person of Jesus Christ. You know how else I know she became a believer? Because she became a missionary immediately. She became an evangelist. How long do you have to be a Christian before you can become, as it were, an evangelist? Well, you had 12 men who came into this city, highly trained, disciples of Messiah himself, and not one of them, as far as we know, even mentioned the name of Jesus. She became a missionary before she even took a drink of water. She received him. Now, what did he do? Chronologically, we should have considered this first, but for the sake of greater impact, we'll consider it now. Um, as we said, everything she did was predictable, but how did she go from going to the well for water to becoming a missionary so quickly? What on earth did he do? And secondarily, what kind of things must we do to become agents of change in the life of people as he, as he was and is. And the first thing he did was this. He came to her. He came to her. Verse 5. Very simple but necessary. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. He came to that one woman. You know, I've been, I try to count them and I, I lost count. I, I, I've been to about 100 missions conferences throughout my life. A lot of missions conferences. I grew up in a church where every year we used to hold a massive missions conference and pull uh, you know, people from all over Southern California and Long Beach, downtown Long Beach. That's where the First Baptist Church was. And we used to bring in our missionaries from all over the world. And they would preach and teach and give us reports of what God was doing. We would have these people in our homes. And I remember as a kid, it was just fascinating. And I went to Biola and then to Talbot for eight years. I'm not stupid. That's how long it took to put things together. Undergraduate in the seminary. And uh, man, we had a, the, the, the missions conference every year and we would gather thousands of people. I worked for two international missions agencies, and I went and spoke at missions conferences. I met with missionaries all over the place. And when you meet with missionaries, you inevitably end up talking about strategy. 
And I'm all for that. I love talking strategy. I love moving the pieces on the board and thinking about things analytically. And one of the great strategies for the church through the centuries has been the urban strategy. You ever heard of that? It's the idea that we have to go to the big cities because that's where the most people are and that's where the greatest impact for the gospel and the kingdom can be had, right? Paul kind of did that with Ephesus. And from Ephesus, man, people went all over the ancient world. And I, I believe in the urban strategy. Timothy Keller, one of my favorite pastors, has an amazing ministry in New York City speaking to New Yorkers. And he loves the big city. And I applaud him. But listen, the reason the cities are important is because there are individuals there. And Jesus Christ may save tens of thousands in any given day, but he saves them one at a time. He cares for the individual. He cares for the one lost sheep. Think of the Lord's ministry for a second. God incarnate spent his ministry pouring his life into some very ordinary people, right? Three years, 12 guys. One of them was a washout. That's, that's a lot of time devoted to to 11 people, 12 people. Think of his post-resurrection ministry. There are 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, correct? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to some over 500 people. You do the math. That's an average of 12 to 13 people a day. This is the only man that is raised from the dead never to die again and does he go to the big venues, the big cities, Nothing wrong with that. But Jesus chose to meet with 12 to 13 ordinary people every day. And you may think that, well, but Marcelo, my sphere of influence is really tiny. Uh, I, I just don't know that that's very important in the overall scheme of things. Maybe you're a, you're a stay-at-home mom. And it takes all your energy, strength, to pour yourself into those kids, those little ankle biters, right? And at the end of the day, you're just spent nurturing them, teaching them, leading them to God, praying for them, correcting them, encouraging them, feeding them, changing them, cleansing them. And you have no more time at the end of the day. And you say, that's just my little flock. That's all I can do right now. Well, take courage from the fact, guys, ladies, that God Almighty, Ponto Crato, the resurrected Lord, took a portion of his very short resurrection ministry and spent it walking between a city, Jerusalem, and a town, Emmaus, with two people who weren't even part of the inner core of disciples. In fact, we know the name of only one of them, Cleopas. It takes a long time because he had a Bible study at a conversational pace with these guys. It takes a long time to travel seven miles. That's how far Emmaus was from Jerusalem. How long does it take? I don't know. And then when he got there, he sat down and began to have a meal with these people. He took a long time with two individuals who were not critical to the development of the early church or New Testament. Why? Because those people, those individuals, were important to Jesus Christ. And he came to her. 
Notice the text says that he had to pass through Samaria. Why Samaria? Of all places. As you know, an observant Jew would never go through Samaria. If he had to travel from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, they would go Transjordan up the east bank. Not the west bank, but up the east bank. And then cross back over into Galilee. They did that in order to avoid going through the, 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 the bad air of Samaria. But verse 4 says, he had, he had to pass through Samaria. Why did he have to pass through Samaria? Because he was going to meet her there. He was going to meet her there. The second thing he did is he let her do something for him. And this is a lost emphasis in evangelism, guys. And yet we see the Lord Jesus doing it over and over and over again. And I'm usually trying so hard to make people see what a spiritual superstar I am that I neglected let them do something for me. The first words out of his mouth to this woman are, give me a drink. Now, do you think that Jesus couldn't have materialized a cup of cold water? Tea. Oh, great. Hot. I mean, Jean-Luc Picard could do it. He fed tens of thousands of people with a few loaves and a few fish. Twice. He created about 120 to 150 gallons of wine, fine wine at Cana like that. You think he couldn't have said water and satiated his thirst? And yet the first words out of his mouth to this lady are, give me a drink. She could have said what? No. You get your own drink. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Get your own drink. He makes himself vulnerable. On the Lord's way to the cross, coming out of Jericho, heading towards Jerusalem, the Lord addresses Zacchaeus. We talked about that a little bit. And there's this great throng of people walking with Jesus, right? And it says that as they were walking, Jesus stops and turns aside, looks up to Zacchaeus, and says, Zacchaeus, I want to go home with you. I want to be in your house, and I want you to feed me. He's amazing. He's just astonishing. You know, with all the things that we're not told in the Gospels, and we're not told a lot, just read the end of John. Why is it that the swaddling clothes were part of the signs? And we're told about the swaddling clothes not once but three times, I believe. You want to know why we're told about the cloths? We're told that because when God Almighty became a man, he couldn't even wrap himself Let me tell you something else why this is staggering. Give me a drink. You know, if a Jew came into contact with with a Samaritan, if an observant Jew came into contact with the shadow of a Samaritan, he was considered ritually unclean. Before he could eat, before he could pray, before he could go to temple, before he could sacrifice, before he could worship, he had to go wash himself ceremonially from the defiling contact of the shadow, not touch, not breath, the shadow of a Samaritan. And do you realize what Jesus says to this lady? He says, ma'am, I'd like a drink from your cup. 
You know, the Jews at this time in world history, during the Roman Empire, they were considered the offscouring of the world. And the Samaritans were the offscouring of the Jews. And the Samaritan women were the offscouring of the Samaritan men. And this woman was the offscouring of the Samaritan women. Why do you think she's there at 12 noon? Remember that observation by Noel Coward, the English playwright? Only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the noonday sun? Except he probably said it with a really cool British accent. I didn't, I'm not going to try that. Only a nut would go out there at noontime in, in the Middle East. The other woman came in the morning. The other woman came in the evening in the cool of the day. She's there at this time because no woman would have anything to do with her. She was despised. She was rejected. She came alone, and he came to her, and he said, I want to drink from your cup. The third thing that he did was that he told her about a free gift. A free gift. Kind of rings hollow to us, doesn't it? Just a little bit. The free introductory offer. After I work out, I cool off by watching a, a few minutes of news and whatever. I was watching news, and then they broke the commercial, so I'm looking at my phone. And they were selling some gizmo. I, I don't even know. I can't even remember what they were selling, but the tagline caught my attention. It said, order now. You can hear it coming, right? And get a second left nostril inhaler for free. And then he said this. And I thought, do they think I'm that stupid? Order now and receive a second gizmo for free. Just pay the separate fee. It's free for a fee? Then it's not a fee, is it? And it's not free. There's nothing that's free. Milton Friedman, the great Nobel laureate from the University of Chicago, the late Nobel laureate, was the president of a club. You know what the club's name was? There ain't no such thing as a free lunch club. And there ain't, pardon my grammar. But what he offers, what Jesus offers, is free. And it's the most costly thing in time and space. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. What is that? Everyone who drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. What is it that we're giving to the world? What is this gift? Does this mean that single Christians never have romantic longings? or ache for meaningful relationships or desire to be married? Does this mean that married Christians never have disappointment and real heartbreak and unmet needs? Does this mean that Christians never want to make the better grades or be better athletes or be slimmer or stronger or run further or faster? Does it mean we don't have those kind of needs when we drink of the waters of salvation? No. But what it does mean is this. You see, I have had almost all those needs at one point or another in my life, except for the need to run. I, I hate running. <laughs> running is of the devil. 
I could probably use a little running. <laughs> but I have had almost all of those needs, and they've been real needs, felt needs. But let me tell you of some things I have not needed since I drank of the water of salvation. I have never longed or wanted for a savior. I have never said, okay, God, if there was just some way I could be clean, if there was just some way that I could know who you are and that you love me and that I had a relationship with you, if I could just know what life meant and why I'm here and what's going to happen to me when I die, if I, if I could just know that I had a relationship with you, if I could just know that I had eternal life and that there's an end to this suffering, if I could just know those things, I have never thirsted for that. Have you? We've drunk deeply from the waters that Jesus has given us in salvation and that has taken away our thirst for all of those things. And that's the kind of thing that he's offering to this woman here. And this is the, the gift, guys, the free gift that we have the opportunity of giving to this world. A world that, in spite of all its self-professed satisfaction and sufficiency, the fact is, is that they can't get sufficiently satisfied. The stones were right on this one. And here we come with water that satiates the deepest thirst of any man or woman. He offered her a free gift. The fourth thing he did was he told her who he was. This is amazing. I love this. Verse 26. Jesus said to her, I, well, let's back up to verse 25 because it's for context. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. She's beginning to think maybe you're the guy. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, just an aside, this is really, this is really staggering, okay? I gave you a couple of reasons of why this was staggering, considering the relationship between Samaritans and Jews at this time in history. Let me give you a a reason why this is staggering because of the nature of the relationship between men and women at this time. And and by the way, this is the only place in the Gospels, okay, where his Messiahship is revealed out of his mouth except for his trial. This is the most complete revelation of his Messiahship that he gives to anybody, and he gives it to a Samaritan whore. And pardon the delicate word, but if I use the word harlot, it removes the impact of what he's doing. The Talmud, which is a collection of rabbinical tradition and commentary on the scriptures, etc. The Talmud had this to say about the relationship between men and women at this day, because it reflects what the rabbis were teaching. And I quote the Talmud, Do not speak with a woman in the street. And almost anticipating the one guy who said, well, what about my wife with a grocery list? Can I tell? No, not with your own wife. Don't speak to any woman publicly, not even your own wife. I quote again. This one hurts. He who teaches the law to his daughter plays the fool. 
I quote again. Better to burn the law than to teach it to a woman. He told her who he was, this Jesus, this Messiah. The sixth thing that he did, the fifth thing that he did, and we only have a couple more, just really one, is he told her who she was. Verse 16 and following. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. I've talked to a lot of people like this over the years. People who I think sometimes watch too many chick flicks. You know, I've watched Pride and Prejudice, and people want to be incandescently happy. Incandescently. I still don't know what that means, but it really sounds beautiful. But they think, oh, all I need in my life is just to have a spouse. Then my needs will be fulfilled. So they get a spouse. And then they think they get wind of that idiotic love song that made the top 40 when my wasted years in high school. You know, it's so sad to belong to someone else when the right one comes along. So they think, oh, I get it. If I have a different spouse than that spouse, then my needs will be met. So they get another spouse. And then they, they think, well, if I had a different spouse than this spouse, then my need would be met. And they finally get to the place where they say, you know, I can do without marriage, but I can't do without the opposite sex. So I'll disregard my conscience and live by my impulses. And that's exactly the place where this woman was at when Jesus said, lady, I know you. I know who you are. He who sees in the secret place, he who sees in the heart, knew her. Guys, you know, I have people that know me, friends that know me, but there are things about me they don't know. And I've done things when I was a younger man that I I would be ashamed to tell any man or woman, no matter how much they love me. Things that are a shame for me. You know what? Jesus Christ knows all about those things. You know what else? He came to me anyway. You know what else? He saved me anyway. And he came to this woman. He loved her anyway. And I don't want to diminish her sins. She, she was a terrible sinner. She, she committed some great sins. But sometimes we get focused on that. And people have often asked me or have asked me periodically, I should say, you know, can the Lord really use someone who's been really immoral? Or can the Lord use someone who's been to prison? Or can the Lord use someone who's done this hideous act or that evil thing? And I guess the question that's being asked is, can the Lord use someone who's a sinner? A great sinner. And the answer that always reverberates back to me is, who else does the Lord have? If he's not going to use sinners, who's he going to use? He wouldn't have used Paul. Have you ever charted the Apostle Paul's estimation of himself? It's really interesting to do. As the New Testament unfolds, in 1 Corinthians 15, he calls himself the least of the apostles. One untimely born. One down here. In first, or excuse me, Ephesians 3, he calls himself the least of the saints. 
Last one in Christianity, back of the line. And in 1 Timothy 1, he says, oh, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. And what's interesting about that chronology is that 1 Corinthians was written before Ephesians, and Ephesians was written before 1 Timothy. And so as the Apostle Paul, this great line of the faith, the evangelist to the nations, the apostle to the Gentiles, as he grew in grace, his estimation of himself became more modest because he saw that God is great and he uses sinners. This woman made some terrible mistakes. She sinned some great sins, but Jesus Christ knew her and he came to her. And listen, let's get personal. The things that you have done in the darkness, the things that are ashamed to speak of, the things that you have forgotten or wish you could, Jesus Christ knows all about those things. You know what else? That didn't keep him from you. That's exactly what drove him to the cross. Because he knew that the only thing that could take away the stain of our guilt was the blood of his cross. And he was driven there so that he might draw us to himself. So that he might take our sin and give us his righteousness. So the last thing that Jesus did, and I'll just mention it because we've talked about it enough, he saved her. And guys, we're coming up to the Lord's table right now. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward if they would um, as we uh, prepare to take it. But this great table is a spiritual feast that is intended for our spiritual benefit. And we need to come to the table knowing what Jesus did. The, the bread, which by the way, if, if you have celiac disease or gluten sensitivities, because we're, we want to partake together, this is gluten-free, so you can take it. The bread represents the body of Christ, which was crushed for our iniquity. The juice represents the blood, which was shed for the remission of our sin. And I want you to be able to come and take this. If you're a believer today, know that this, this was done for you. And this is the table that God the Father is inviting you to join him and his son as a friend, as a brother of Jesus, as a family member. So take it freely and enjoy it. And if today you don't know Jesus Christ, what keeps you? The same Jesus that approach that woman is approaching you today. And you today can have the assurance of forgiveness of sins and eternal life in his name. Just talk to me or one of the other uh, staff members after our service. And I'm going to ask uh, the guys after I pray to start up with a worship song and then come and take the Lord's table as you feel led. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, so much for the beauty of your son. Uh, Lord, he uh, sometimes just takes our breath away. We th thank you, Lord God, for your great mercy and your great grace through Jesus. And uh, may we be reminded of his death, his burial and resurrection as we partake in the elements today. In Jesus' name, amen.